The sermon this morning comes from Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church as Jesus sees it. This is the title of our sermon series. It's what's guiding us through this. And the quick answer to the church as Jesus sees it is at the end of chapter one of Revelation when he describes the seven lampstands as the seven churches. And so he uses this imagery of a lampstand that was what existed in the tabernacle in the Old Testament that lit up the tabernacle, which was a symbol of God's light in the middle, middle of darkness and the middle of sin and the middle of brokenness. And so he says the church is to be light. And then he writes seven letters to churches describing what does it look like for a church to function as light. You know, we oftentimes talk about how the church views the world, how we in the church view the world. But I think sometimes it's helpful for us to see how the world views the church. Does the world view the church as light? How does the darkness view the light? This past week, I was reading an article about seven common comments that non-Christians make about Christians. Uh, it was this uh, person and group who had done massive interviews of non-believers, and they got tons of quotes, and they compiled them together into seven nuggets of how the world tends to view the church or how non-Christians tend to view Christians. Now, I'm not gonna read all seven of those, but they're striking. In fact, there may be some of you here this morning who would say you're a, you're a seeker or you're a skeptic. You're, you're searching out what is Christianity really all about? And probably one of these comments is, might have resonated or might maybe, maybe resonates in your own heart. We're gonna focus on one of them this morning because it really does tie in and speak to the heart of the issue in this church in Thyatira. Listen to it. So the, the author categorized all of these quotes into this statement, and then I'll read you one of the quotes. I don't see much difference 
in the way Christians live compared to others. Okay, that was one of the categories. And here was an actual quote from a non-Christian. I really can't tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't seem much different than other people I know. The only exception would be Mormons. They really seem to take their beliefs seriously. Now, what this person is getting at is that beliefs should translate into how you live your life. And his experience was that he sees a, at least a professed belief, but not much living that comes out of that. What we would call belief or faith without works. There's a whole book of the Bible that's addressed to that, and it's the book of James, right? Faith without works is dead. Uh, this is actually what's at the very heart of this letter to the church in Thyatira. In fact, the word works appears five times in the letter. Now, when we talk about good works, okay, we, we get nervous, and, and we get nervous for a few reasons. There are two polar extremes that we tend to run to when we talk about works or how you live your life as a follower of Christ. And we fear both extremes. On the one extreme, is there such a fear to even talk about good works because that will get translated into earning your salvation. And so we don't want anything to do with earning our salvation, and so we're gonna fear any conversation that talks about how you should live your life. And so we tend to, as we always do with fear, react. The other extreme then is an environment, a church, a culture, where we don't talk about the word should at all. Because to talk about should means to earn your salvation, so we're not gonna talk about it and then you have an environment where there's belief and faith, but there really are no words. And for some reason in the church, we, are, we act as though those two extremes are our only option. And because we operate out of fear, we don't operate with a right understanding of how works should function in the church, in the Christian life. What role do good works play in the church functioning as light in the darkness? And to answer that, we're gonna answer three questions. One, what produces immoral works or what produces immorality, bad works? Two, what produces good works? And then finally, why do good works matter? Which is another way of saying, why does it matter what you do? Let's start with what produces immoral works. Verse 20. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, there was a Jezebel in the church of Thyatira. There was also a Jezebel 1,000 years earlier in the Old Testament that speaks into what we see happening here in this church. It was Queen Jezebel. We learn of her in 1 Kings. She was married to the, the weak 
King Ahab. Jezebel was a foreigner, and she brought her religion into Israel. And at the core of her false teaching was a complete divorce of morality from religion, or a complete divorce of works from faith. She was contaminating Israel, and Ahab was a weak king, and he didn't stand up to it, and he didn't have many moral convictions, and so it it got into the body and, and God's people. What we find here in this letter in Revelation 2 is the same brand of false teaching with the Jezebel that's in this church, which is this teaching where works are divorced from faith or where uh, morality is divorced from spirituality. In fact, in the Jezebel a thousand years earlier, what she was actually doing was encouraging God's people to participate in sexual immorality. And they were doing it, or at least she taught to do it under the guise of religion. And we find the same thing here, that Jezebel is encouraging God's people to participate in sexual immorality under the guise of religion. Now you say, where are you getting that? How do we know that? Look at verse 24. Jesus says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, many believe, and I think it's accurate, that what's really going on here is that Jezebel and her followers actually talked about the deep things of God, a very deep spirituality. And what's happening here is that that John, who writes the letter of Revelation, and also some of the followers of him and the people in the church have called it for what it is. It's not the deep things of God. It's the deep things of Satan. It's of the, of the satanic realm. And what we think is happening here is that, is that Jezebel is leading people into this, this divide of the physical and the spiritual. It's really an early picture of what happened in the coming centuries of Gnosticism, which is a big word, and all it meant was this very thing. Physical world, physical bodies, bad, corrupt, evil. Spiritual world, spiritual stuff, good. So material, bad, immaterial, soul, all that's good. And what it led to is that you could delve into the the deep secrets of God. You could have this deep spirituality with God. It didn't matter what you did with your life. That's what she was teaching. So you could have the deep things of God and be engaged in sexual morality because physical and spiritual are separated. It's what Paul, the apostle Paul, dealt with uh, in, in the Corinthian church. He wrote two letters to the Corinthian church, First and Second Corinthians. And if you read those letters, the Corinthian church was a church that went wild. I mean, it was a church that had gone wild with sin, uh, specifically sexual immorality. And so Paul, he writes to them, and the reason they had gone wild is that they had, had made this divorce in Corinth that looked like we're free in Christ. We've been forgiven, we're free in Christ, so it really doesn't matter what we do with our lives. And Paul addresses this and says, no, it does. It matters what you do. Good works are important. And then he tells them why. 1 Corinthians chapter three, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And then he goes on a couple chapters later in 1 Corinthians to talk to these believers that are caught in sexual immorality. And he says, stop, but then he explains why. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body, your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You see, there's no spiritual, physical divide. God didn't come to rescue you from an evil body or from an evil world. He didn't come to rescue you from it. He came to redeem it. He came to redeem your body. He came to redeem this world. That's why one of my seminary professors, I'll never forget it. He said over and over, God loves bodies. So much so that he sent his son to put one on. That he loves bodies. There's no divorce of the spiritual and the physical. That they are very much one. And as followers of Jesus Christ, who is the temple of God, you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. That physical and spiritual are one. Now, on top of that, heaven is not just a spiritual, immaterial place. And this is one of the misconceptions I think we have in our culture, even within the church. Heaven is a very physical place. It's described as the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. It's coming down out of heaven to earth. Heaven is a very spiritual place. I mean, a very physical place. We will have physical bodies. We will do physical work in the new heavens and the new earth. That it's very physical. And so what we learn is that when the spiritual and the physical are separated, that opens the door for all kinds of acts of immorality because we function as though spiritual good and it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies and Jesus says, no, it does. And at the core of that problem is that, is that separation of spiritual and physical. Second question, what produces good works? So we looked at what produces immoral works and specifically here in the church in Thyatira. So what produces good works? You know, at the heart of Jesus' letter here is his desire to get Jezebel and her followers to repent and to get God's people who are faithful that we read about in verse 19 to actually speak into this and do something about it. But he's aiming at repentance. That's what, that's what Jesus is looking for here. And the question becomes, what produces repentance? Because repentance is what produces good works. And what you see is that the searching eyes of Christ are highlighted in this letter, specifically in two places. You look at verse 18. It says, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. And then verse 23, and all the churches will know that I am he who searched mind and heart. Eyes like a flame of fire. That's actually a reference to Daniel chapter 10, verse six, which describes Jesus Christ as king and Lord over all. That we're talking about King Jesus here who has all power and authority, whose eyes are, are piercing. Think about uh, Peter. Do you remember what happened to Peter after he denied Jesus three times? 
Remember that? He denies Jesus three times. The rooster crows as Jesus had predicted. And then what do we learn in Luke 22, 61? It says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, and he went out and wept bitterly. What caused Peter to repent? It was Jesus looking into his eyes. And I can imagine, I can only imagine Peter, when he saw those loving, tender, and yet disappointed eyes piercing into his, that it went into his eye, into his soul, deep within, and caused him to repent and to weep. It's the picture of a father that confronts his daughter about lying. He's sitting in the den and he calls his daughter in, his seven-year-old daughter in, and she comes up to him, and her shoulders are somewhat slumped. She has an idea of where this is going. And dad says, did you lie to me? The daughter has her head down. She shakes her head no. And dad says to her again, honey, did you lie to me? The daughter continues to have her head down and shakes her head no. And then the father says, look at me, look at me. This little girl picks her head up. She looks into her dad's eyes and her dad says one more time, honey, did you lie to me? And that little girl nods her head, yes, with tears streaming down her cheeks. Why? Because she looked into her dad's eyes and she saw love she saw tenderness, and she saw disappointment, all of that. It's the eyes of Christ. It's the gaze of Christ that produces repentance. It's eye contact with Jesus Christ that produces repentance. And you say, well, that's poetic, what does eye contact with Jesus Christ look like? You know, the searching eyes of Christ bring conviction, but it's not until you make eye contact with Christ that that results in repentance. The, 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 the searching eyes of Christ and eye contact with Christ is talked about in Psalm 139. The psalmist writes it this way in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what it means to lift your eyes and have contact with Jesus, to say, Jesus, search me. Your searching eyes are on me, and I am returning the gaze and saying, search me, know me. Show me if there's something sinful in me, so that I may repent and lead me in the way everlasting. And when you lift your eyes, when you lift your eyes to Jesus, what you find is a Savior that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, this gets crowded out in this passage, in this letter, because upon first glance, you read this letter and go, there are some harsh words from Jesus in this letter. Are there not? 
really harsh. And some of you are scratching your head going, I don't get that. I mean, this is a passage or a letter to this church that's about judgment, right? He threatens Jezebel with sickness on the sickbed where she's committed her sin. He threatens her children with death. He threatens those that commit adultery with Jezebel with great tribulation. You go, my goodness, slow to anger, abounding in love. No, quick to anger, slow to love. This is a passage about judgment. That's because we miss a critical phrase in this letter. And it's verse 21. It's verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32 for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. You know, oftentimes God is seen as a, a cranky, explosive father from whom the kids hide when he comes home from work. Some of you maybe grew up that way, that your, your dad was a hair trigger away from judgment and wrath, and you knew it. And when he came home or when he came to the house and you could tell that he was on that hair trigger of judgment, you hid. You went in your closet, you went under your bed. Some of you have that story. The Bible paints a very different picture of our Heavenly Father. The Bible says that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In fact, it's just the opposite God is not a hair trigger away from judgment. Now, when I say hair trigger, you understand what that means, right? With a gun, it's a trigger that you just, you barely touch, and then boom, goes off. God's not a hair trigger away from judgment. Listen, if he was a hair trigger away from judgment, your Bible would be three pages. It would be Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's it. And as soon as Adam and Eve blew it and rebelled against God, boom, hair trigger, judgment, end of story, three pages. No, the Bible is a story about a compassionate God who is a hair trigger away from compassion and patience and love and kindness and mercy. In fact, when Jesus, or even think about the prodigal son, Luke 15, picture of the father on the porch, waiting for his lost son to come back so he can embrace him. Think about Jesus in the Gospels when he's dealing with the hard-hearted Pharisees who won't repent. Same thing as Jezebel, different context, but they, they wouldn't repent. They were hard-hearted. What did Jesus say to them? Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. You see, God is a compassionate father that longs for his children to come home. 
He's a hair trigger from compassion. And it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance, which leads to good works, which are nothing more than, God, I just want to please you with my life. I just want to please you. That's what produces repentance. We get to our third question. Why do good works matter? Why do good works matter? If your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west, Jesus paid for it all, past, present, and future, then who cares what you do? That's the argument Paul addressed in Romans 6. Man, if grace abounds, who cares? You say, well, good works don't earn salvation. We're clear on that. Jesus' works earn salvation for us, but they're evidence of salvation. True, but that still doesn't answer the question. Why do good works really matter? Okay, so we turn to Matthew 5, 16. Speaks to it pretty directly. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, most of the time we read that verse and we read it in an individualistic, uh, exemplary way, meaning, okay, so I do good things, I do things in accordance with God's will so that it'll be a good example so that people will see what God's like. That's true. That still doesn't get at the heart of it, and it doesn't get at the heart of what Jesus is talking here in the Sermon on the Mount. The key to Matthew 5.16 is the end where it says, your father who is in heaven, and the preceding verse, a city that is set on a hill. You see, your father who's in heaven, heaven is an unseen realm, invisible. That's the point that Jesus is making. Your father who is unseen, who's in an invisible realm called heaven, called the city of God. And it's God's desire that the city of God unseen or the kingdom of God would come to bear here on this earth, the city of man. A kingdom has a king, and that's the language we see in this letter to the church of Thyatira. Verse 26 and 27, he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. You combine that language with the Son of God reference in verse 18, and you have a clear allusion or a clear pointing to Psalm 2 which describes Jesus Christ as the reigning king who is king over all kings, even ungodly, evil kings, that Jesus is, is king over all. Psalm 2, verses seven to nine. Father says, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And then listen to this. This is exactly what we read in this letter in Revelation. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus Christ reigns and Jesus is building his kingdom, an invisible kingdom here on earth. So back to the question, why do good works matter? The answer is how Jesus is building his kingdom here on earth. In Psalm 2, when it says, you shall rule them with a rod of iron, you is speaking of Christ. 
in Revelation 2, when it says, he will rule them with a rod of iron, who's that speaking of? The one who conquers and keeps Christ's works till the end and is given authority over the nations. That's you and me. Revelation chapter 20, verse six says that we will reign with Christ. And that right now, now, before Jesus returns, we're ushering in his reign and building his kingdom through good works that are in accordance with his will. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul gives, I'm gonna go back to it, he gives a very compelling reason for good works, why what you do now actually does matter, that it really does matter. And remember, Paul is addressing this church where things had gone wild. Sin was rampant, they had divorced morality from religion, works from faith, and so he gives them this very powerful argument of why what they do matters. And he talks about a construction project and building something. It's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 14. It says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, there's that word, will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that your works, what you do with your life, is either gold or silver, precious metal, or it's wood, hay, or straw. And that when Jesus Christ returns in judgment, that the gold and the silver will pass through the fires of judgment and be refined, but that the wood and the, and the straw and the hay will be burned up. What that means... <laughs> It's profound, is that what you do now matters. That your good works that are done for Jesus and in accordance with his will will pass through the fires of judgment and endure for eternity. They'll be refined. Here's the picture that, that, that Paul is presenting. When Jesus Christ returns and brings the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new city of God, He's not just gonna wipe out this earth and wipe you out and start over. He's gonna purge which doesn't belong. That's what the, the refining fire is speaking of. He's gonna purge what doesn't belong. So all of your good works that are done for Christ in accordance with his will will pass through. Be refined. He'll purge what doesn't belong and keep what is good. Do you see the difference that makes in your mindset of what you do today? That it really does matter. That you're really building the kingdom of God here on earth. Think about a bricklayer. If you've ever watched a, a bricklayer do his work, what you'll see is if there's a bricklayer who's building a wall to a building, somewhere near him, you'll see a scrap pile of bricks. 
and then you'll see the supply pile. And what the bricklayer does is he grabs a brick and he looks at it and he inspects it. If it's cracked or it's chipped, it's not fit for the wall, goes to the scrap pile, gets another brick. If there's no cracks and no chips and it's fit for the wall, it goes in the wall. Your good works that are done for Jesus now, in accordance with Jesus' will, are bricks that are going in the wall of the kingdom of God that is being built now here on this earth. And so what you do matters. That's why good works matter. They're not just an example for people. While yes, certainly they are, you are actually building the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus says in his letter to the church in Thyatira, keep my works until the end. When I come and refine and purge and build permanently what was inaugurated and what has started since my resurrection. 